Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're having a good day, and we appreciate you letting us be part of your day. Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about a decision concerning grizzly bears. We'll be talking with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We'll take a closer look at the pork industry in the state of Minnesota. We'll talk with the CEO of the Minnesota Pork Producers and what the pork industry is asking for in way of assistance. And we'll talk with the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, Chandler Gould, get his reaction to USDA still rejecting certain types of wheat from the CFAT program and their ongoing efforts to get more wheat included in that assistance effort. So all that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start things off today checking in with a couple of farmers for crop condition reports. Joining us now is David Erickson from Illinois and Cy Prettyman from Ohio. David, thank you. We'll start with you. You farm near the Quad Cities uh, in Illinois. I know some severe weather moved through that area over the weekend, but you tell me for the most part it missed you? Yeah, good morning, Mike. Yeah, there were some areas that had some pretty significant um, wind damage on crops and green snap. I think the full assessment on what actually took place there is still, uh, you know, ongoing. Uh, certainly, you know, as you know, as corn develops and grows so quickly, some of that will spring back up. But if it's truly green snap, um, of course, those plants are lost. Uh, but it seemed to be a fairly concentrated area, so not widespread and, and very little property damage. How do your crops look? Our crops, I've described them all along as looking, um, you know, good to very good. They're consistent. Um, most of the corn is all the same size. Much of it planted in a, in a four or five day window in April. Um, some may planting soybeans, um, anywhere from late April to the very early May. So, uh, things here got back to a more normal planting schedule versus, uh, the last couple of years. And uh, right now, things look good. Most of the corn is tasseling, started last week and uh, pollinating this week. How about your beans? Soybeans are, are coming right along. They um, seem to be a little slow out of the gate, if you will, but they have kind of caught up. Um, obviously, um, um, the narrow soybeans have you know filled the rows in and uh, we're, we're blooming. Uh, we haven't gotten to the point where we're setting pods, but uh, bloom's taking place, and uh, they, it actually looks pretty good. Also with us is Cy Prettyman from Ohio, north of Columbus. Cy, I think the last time we talked, you were wrapping up planting. How do crops look in your area now? Uh, not too bad. We've turned off pretty dry here in July. Uh, we had uh, personally, like just at my home farm, uh, I think I caught three quarters of an inch of rain there at the end of June. And then here in July, we just, it's been pretty variable anywhere from a couple tenths, maybe up to uh, closer to an inch on some of the farms is what we've seen. So we've seen some minor heat stress um, and drought stress in the corn uh, last week and cooled off. Today's last couple of days have been pretty nice, so we haven't seen it as much. But definitely as I've traveled around the area, I'm seeing some stress and drought stress. And then other areas, I mean, you can go a half mile away and you'll find some a field that's got water laying in it because they got underneath one of the 
downpours from the pop-up showers that we've been seeing. Um, but overall, I'm I'm not I'm pretty satisfied with where my crops more variable in the corn variation as far as size uh, doesn't sound quite as nice as David what David's describing out there. And of course, we were a little later. Uh, getting started than they were first of May, um, first couple of weeks of May on the corn, and then wrapped up the beans uh, there at the first of June. So, uh, but not too bad overall. Yeah, you got a little later start than you had hoped as far as planting is concerned. Uh, what's your forecast? Uh, are you looking at more dry weather? Do you have some rain in the forecast? Again, all we're seeing is spotty chances uh, over the next week or so here, and the temperatures are. Uh, starting to head back up. So I would guess we'll see some more stress on the crops as we go later into this week. Uh, We have some pop-up chances kind of towards the end of the week, get into Thursday and over the weekend. And and then the following week, uh, they do have a little bit more rain in the forecast, but uh, nothing that looks like it's going to be a good soaker at this point unless you get under Mm -hmm. one of those little little Mm pop-ups. David, any insect or disease problems showing up on your farm? Nothing significant yet, though. We have noticed some Japanese beetles starting to uh, hmm. find the sweet corn that's tasseling and um, pollinating here. So hopefully that's a rather small event. We have Japanese beetles, plenty of them, the last couple of springs, summers. Uh, so hopefully we can avoid that. Right now uh, we're in pretty good shape. We, we've had a little bit more rain, um, you know, somewhere between – uh, depending on uh, thir- last Thursday night, depending on where you're at, you know, somewhere between six tenths and, and some places up to three inches. Um, we didn't get in like that. And then again, Saturday night, you know, some from zero to another half an inch for people. So the rains kind of come along. That kind of helps uh, keep the bugs at bay. Uh, we are going to warm up as the week goes on here with more chances of rain starting actually tonight into tomorrow. And again, uh, as was described, we're uh, you know if you're under a big one, you're going to get more than uh, than some others. Hopefully, no no wind storms though. Mm-hmm. Cy, what about you? Disease or insect issues uh, in your area? The crop looks really healthy right now. Uh, I was out last night looking at a few things, and yeah, it's it's looking very nice. Starting to see, I did see a few Japanese beetle around, so it's seeing a little bit, but no, nothing of any uh, concern at this point. Um, we are just, the corn, just starting to see a few fields starting to tassel uh, in our area. So we're a little bit behind there, um, but that'll come a, come along pretty rapidly, I would guess, at this point. And beans are full flower to starting to pot up a little bit. Um, uh, but overall health looks great. Much spraying going on in your area, Si? Um, I think most guys have kind of got, got caught up on uh, the crop protection side. I did see a plane out earlier this week, so um, I've seen some fungicide and stuff starting to go on. So I think that will pick up here in the next 14 days. We'll see quite a bit of activity then on on that side of it uh, as guys uh, decide whether they're going to apply any fungicides, uh, insecticide, anything like that here in the next couple of weeks. How about you, David? Yeah, I'd agree with size assessment. I think the the uh, flight pattern is going to increase here over rural Illinois as uh, you know corn gets through this pollination phase. Here, we'll see uh, for those that uh, want to apply fungicide or insecticide on corn. That's going to start happening here pretty quick. And then uh, you know with those bean set pods, that's when you make the decision about that for soybeans. But the overall health looks good. 
right now. It's, I guess uh, you're going to have to decide what you think is going to happen to the crop health-wise uh, going forward and, and make your decision accordingly. All right, David Erickson in Illinois, Cy Prettyman in Ohio. Guys, thank you both for being with us. We appreciate the updates, and we'll stay in touch and uh, talk again later in the year as we get closer to harvest time. All right, up next, we'll talk with Caitlin Glover with NCBA about a grizzly bear decision. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as we all know, there are a lot of challenges uh, when you're farming, whether it's the weather or the markets or trade policies or government action or inaction or things like that. And you're dealing with uh, wildlife uh, for a lot of our listeners, uh, damage to crops from, say, deer. But not too many of our listeners have to be concerned about grizzly bears. But if you are in certain parts of the country, that is an issue. Joining us now is Caitlin Glover, National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Executive Director for Natural Resources and Public Lands Council Executive Director. Caitlin, thanks for joining us. There's been a decision by the Interior Department on grizzly bears, uh, and I know that you're happy with that announcement. Tell us about it. Well, good morning, Mike, and thanks for letting me talk about uh, some good news this morning. Uh, last week, we heard the announcement out of uh, Interior. Secretary Bernhardt was uh, in Washington State and, and made the announcement that uh, after several years, uh, a very long, involved process, the, the department would not be going forward with their decision um, or their, their initiative to introduce grizzly bears back into the North Cascades. Now, that, that's a, a region of Washington um, where, uh, where bears have been um, in, in the past, but this would have been a, a translocation, um, a, a reintroduction is what they were calling it, of, of vastly uh, more bears into that ecosystem. Uh, it sort of invokes the, 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 the visual of, of air-dropping predators uh, into an ecosystem and, and, and fundamentally you know, changing the way that, that ecosystem works. So to, to, have it, uh, to have it discontinued is, is, is definitely good news. Yeah, you know, again, a lot of, of our listeners are, are, you know, probably very thankful they don't have a, a grizzly bear issue to deal with. But uh, describe for us, for those folks in an area like in the state of Washington, what they've been dealing with. Well, absolutely. So, so you know, you talked a little bit about deer and, and other um, other disturbances to crops, right? You know, the, the same um, is true for for livestock production. Um, when you have an apex predator or you have an overabundance of apex predators in an ecosystem, um, you're talking about your traditional losses through depredation, right? Um, so bears, wolves, wolverines, mountain lions, uh, all of them are, are, are uh, looking for, for a snack. They're, they're, they're hungry. Uh, and if wildlife don't meet their needs or their other uh, food sources don't meet their needs, they often go after, uh, go after livestock. Um, and so you, you have calf loss, you have cow loss, um, you, know, you, you hope that you don't have bull loss, but, but all of those are, are incredibly expensive. 
But there's, there's another kind of loss as well. Um, you, anytime that you have significant stress like that in, in cattle or in sheep, um, you have lost yield. Their, their growth potential uh, is limited, and so you're, you're, you're seeing losses there, there as well. Um, you know, on the, on, there, there are other impacts too. Um, bears and wolves, I mean, they run through fences. They run cows through fences and sheep. Um, they, you know, there, there's some destruction of some of that infrastructure as well. Um, and that's, that's just on the, the, the pure ranching production side. Um, I think it's important to remember, too, that Interior is part of this decision. You know, they had to, to take a whole ecosystem approach uh, through that environmental impact statement that they were, they were looking at those impacts. It's not just ranchers who, who didn't want to see this ecosystem disrupted. You know, it's a community, too. Uh, you're seeing increased um, incidences a- across the West of, of hikers and, and um, hunters and, and other recreationalists, you know, when you have uh, a large population of these bears. Um, so, you know, for these, you know, it's, it's the cows, it's the sheep, but it's also the, the kids and the fishermen uh, and, and, and all of the rest. Um, it's, it's, it can be some pretty scary stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very important point to make. We're talking about more than just crop damage or livestock losses. We're talking about a risk to human life here. Well, we we are. Um, so I, I think one of the other uh, important points to make is that you know there are other ecosystems uh, in the United States that have really robust grizzly bear populations. Um, in fact, the the Fish and Wildlife Service is undergoing a status review um, for the the population of those bears in the lower 48. So, so they're going through this review to determine you know whether this bear is is recovered. Um, now. Of course, you know, we had the decision out of the, the service uh, a couple years ago that the greater Yellowstone ecosystem population, that distinct population segment had been recovered. Um, that has, of course, been challenged in court. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, um, very often litigated area. Um, but but the, the point being is that, you know, that the service has recognized that distinct population segments of these bears are recovered. Overall, they're, they're looking at whether these bears are recovered nationwide. Uh, and so then to be looking at uh, introducing a population to a new area and, and creating a new, a new problem for themselves effectively, um, you know, that's, that's really what we avoided here. And these, you know, the bears are, are, have robust populations uh, ac- across the U.S. Um, and so, so to reintroduce them in a new area just doesn't make a lot of sense. We're talking with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Of course, the bigger issue, Caitlin, is is the procedures that are used in making these kind of decisions. In this case, grizzly bears, but as you mentioned, there have been other uh, species. I mean, we talk wolves or whatever, uh, and how uh, the agency approaches those decisions. So that that's the big issue that uh, uh, we have to keep an eye on, and it's, it's it seems like that's a that's a constant issue. It is, and so you know, some a lot of these large predators, um, for one reason or another, have been listed or or considered for some protection under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, it's something that you hear a lot um, from from Western communities. You know, they really see the impacts of of endangered species uh, protections and then uh, limitations on activities. Um, and and the the issue is not whether we want to protect these species, right? I mean, this we we see the recovery of the the bald eagle. We see the recovery of you know polar bears and and you know all of these really iconic species that ESA has facilitated some some improvement over time. 
the problem is not the recovery, right? The, the problem is when you, you know that these populations have recovered and then you return them to a more normal management protocol. So, for example, you know, with, with grizzly bears, it's, it's not necessarily nationwide. It's, it's not necessarily um, that, that these bears are or are not recovered. It's whether certain uh, litigious groups want to see those protections removed. Um, you know, when for, for cattlemen, for, for sheep producers, um, and really for, for any sort of businessman, right, or business person, um, we look at metrics, right? We have a goal, we set benchmarks, we set metrics, and once we've achieved that goal, we move on. That's really um, the, the issue here with, with ESA. You have to know and you have to have that trigger for when a species is recovered, and then you get them off the list. The goal is recovery and delisting. It's not perpetual protection. It's, it's a constant balancing act, right? I mean, trying to find that right mix, that right balance. It, it is, and, and that's, you know, really why this, this sound science, this, this best available science is important. That's why we have both people on the ground, the ranchers, the, the, the producers, you know, those experts on the ground who, who know what those, those ongoing conditions are, who know what that balance is. But then we also have tools. We need to have tools that allow those managers to make those decisions. You know, the ESA and, and any other federal law needs to be as, as efficient as possible and as usable as possible um, to make sure that imperiled species can be recovered. Um, they, they shouldn't be a, a tool to um, cause more, more strife or, 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 or more um, bureaucratic process in, in some of these communities. That, you know, there's, there was a long, you know, returning to the North Cascades, right, there was a long process. This has been going on since 2015, this assessment of whether to reintroduce bears or, or not into this North Cascades ecosystem. Um, so we're talking, you know, five years of, of assessment um, and it, just to arrive at the, at the right conclusion. Um, so, so making these, these federal tools more nimble, making them responsive to, to something on the ground, that's something that NCBA and, and PLC really, really place a high priority uh, here in, in Washington, Washington, D.C. <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. So will this be, uh, um, this decision, is, is it final or is there more to it? Yeah, so, so, so this is a, a withdrawal of, of, a, of, an, of a, an activity. Um, so this is, this is a, effectively a, a final decision. Now, um, like I said, you know, there are other ongoing agency processes uh, with respect to grizzly bears. The, the agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service, is talking um, and, and is undergoing an assessment uh, this year um, to, to determine the, the success rate of recovery for bears across the lower 48. Okay. Um, they, they undertake, you know, this is a process that's required, and so we look forward to them um, arriving at the right conclusion there as well. All right, Caitlin, we don't often talk grizzly bears on this program, but uh, appreciate the update. I know it's an important issue, especially in those areas like Washington State. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Up next, a look at the pork industry in general, the state of Minnesota in particular, here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We continue to look at the challenges facing the pork industry due to COVID-19. 
And joining us now is the CEO of the Minnesota Pork Producers Association, David Preisler. David, thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. What is the overview of, of the industry, your industry there in the state of Minnesota? Kind of get, explain to our listeners the challenges that your producers are facing and some of the ways they're dealing with them. Well, I think the the biggest challenge, and obviously triggered by by COVID, is that uh, now a couple of months ago, um, we had a couple of packing plants here in Min- one in Minnesota, um, one in uh, Iowa, one in South Dakota, where where an awful lot of our pigs that are produced in Minnesota actually go for processing, ended up closing uh, because of COVID. They also had some of the longest closures that uh, occurred in the United States. And so because of that, we ended up with a significant amount of pigs that were backed up um, on the farm. And it's something that we're still working through today. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing on how quickly they can get backed up and then, again, how long it takes to work through that backup. Um, things are getting better from that standpoint, but we still have pigs that are backed up. And unfortunately, when that's the case, um, it results in prices that are depressed. Yeah, how much better is that situation? We know those plants uh, getting going again. We we've been getting updates on the the national figures and how much of a backlog there is in your state. What's the situation? You know, we're still probably backed up a few hundred thousand head, um, and which again is is better than where we were sitting um, even uh, even a month ago or so. I think the other thing that's going to be really difficult to to quite honestly to measure is that we also had an awful lot of pigs that farms just either gave away um, or you know got very little money for them in order to just avoid having to put pigs down and uh, it's expensive it's also um, you know really hard on people to put healthy pigs down and so there were a lot of creative things that farmers did to basically move pigs off the farm unfortunately it didn't result in much revenue and uh, that's a number that's really hard to, to pin down. It's, you know, in excess of probably 200,000 um, head in, just in Minnesota that that occurred with. But it did help with some, to build some flexibility in the system. And, uh, you know, we had the June hog and pig report that gave us a, a picture of kind of what's going on. You know, I think the September one will clear that picture up a whole lot. And obviously, hopefully by September, we'll work through the backlog of pigs that exist today. Yeah, you have that challenge. I mean, producers can kind of idle or slow things down only so much, right? And then that space has to be used for the next uh, next batch of pigs coming on. So you can only do that so long. You're exactly right. And, uh, you know, I give our farmers and I give their nutritionists an awful lot of credit from a standpoint of how they were actually able to, to creatively slow pigs down and, and not compromise animal welfare. Um but you're exactly right from a standpoint. There are still pigs that were born and that that need to move into that space at some point in time. Um, so there are, you know, some difficult choices that end up being made um, on farms in order to, to deal with that. But it's also what's resulted in the backup, um, you know. And, and so we just need to continue to work through that backup. And as soon as we can do that and get things and flow back to normal, the better off we'll be. Then the other key is going to be, you know, we've had some really good gains in packing plants from a standpoint of capacity. We just can't afford to go backwards. And uh, that's going to be the other thing that I know plants are going to be concentrating on, too. We're talking with David Preisler, CEO of Minnesota Pork Producers. All right, David, let's look at it 
from the financial side of it, the economic side of it, and what producers are dealing with. Uh, we've talked about the packing issue. Uh, we know there's been a demand issue as things have backed up, and uh, we've seen the food service industry, restaurant industry take this big hit during COVID-19, still trying to recover from that. Uh, the prices that uh, producers have been getting uh, you know, very concerning, and so that has led to assistance from the government, but the, I know that that isn't taking care of everything either. So what's the economic picture for your industry in Minnesota? Yeah, I'd say in general, it's this is the, the worst economic year um, that, that anyone can remember. Um, you know, we've had downturns before, um, but they they haven't been either as long as, as this or as deep as this, um, as this downturn that we're in right now. And, uh, and again, until we're able to work through that backlog of pigs, it's going to be difficult for prices to rebound um, because the packers know those pigs are out there. And um, so we need to get work through those. Um, the other thing from a demand standpoint, um, you know, export demand has been pretty good, um, you know, especially business with China. Now, the export demand in May, which those numbers just just came out, um, was soft. Um, but that's really at a point in time when uh, when the wholesale price of of meat really took off. And so, to a certain degree, that's a little bit predictable. Um, I would assume that as we move into now, when prices came back down again, especially on the meat side um, in June, that we would regain some of that business. Um, so the export side's been good. Um, you're exactly correct, though. The food service side has been uh, extremely challenging. Um, you know, two-thirds or so of bacon is sold through food service, which means restaurants. And uh, so it's put some pressure there. Also, just plain like ham sandwiches and those sorts of things that, that primarily end up moving through that food service side. And so uh, it's disappointing now to see, you know, the things go backwards in southern states from a standpoint of covid um, because it, it is going to result in more pressure on closing restaurants and slowing them down. And so that in itself is probably going to be a negative. Um, you know, hopefully we can, in the upper Midwest, can kind of hold our own like we are right now and uh, continue to move forward. How much is CFAP helping pork producers in your state? You know, CFAP was helpful, I think, especially to smaller and medium-sized farms. Um, it had its, the, the most help. Um, but there are a lot of medium-sized family farms that ended up capping out, um, and so it, it became of limited value there. You know, depending on the farm, it, it may have covered, you know, 15 to 25 percent um, on the very upper end, 30 percent of losses that that they uh, incurred the first half of the year, um, or excuse me, first quarter of the year. But the losses continue on, and so we are. Um, hopeful that Congress will come up with something um, for pork producers. As we look at the next COVID bill, the House has already passed what's called the HEROES Act, which has a piece in that HEROES Act that addresses um, pork and pork farmers. Um, and it does, we really like the bill. It was championed by uh, Representative Colin Peterson from uh, Western Minnesota and uh, also had uh, uh, good support from other Democrats within uh, Minnesota. Then the Senate still has their work to do yet. There is a bill that's been introduced by Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma that would uh, mirror some of the things that are in the House bill, uh, but the Senate still has not taken up a COVID bill. We expect that that will happen now 
um, here the end of July, first part of August, uh, before they will go on August recess. And I think it's an incredibly important thing that, that this gets done. Um, we've seen losses that we could have never predicted, and, um, and it will change the landscape of rural communities if we, uh, if we don't see an infusion of cash. David, we saw a major restructuring of the industry in the late 90s. Do you see something like that happening again from COVID-19? You know, I think without a cash infusion, it certainly is going to lend itself towards that direction. Um, I think the other thing, though, is that um, as a visit with with lenders, you know, by and large, the folks that are positioned the best um, to weather through this are in the upper Midwest. Um, our cost structure in the upper Midwest is is lower than what it is in on the East Coast, for example. Um, and the other thing is that you know it's much more of an integrated system from a standpoint of of utilizing the manure to recycle on the soil to to raise feed or or feed grains again. And you know that side of it has got a real big value proposition in the upper Midwest compared to maybe other parts of the country that we can't forget about also. And so I think in general, we'll probably fare better than maybe um, some of the fringe areas of, of the Corn Belt. But this has been difficult on, on all sides of farms. Um, there, there's no one that is coming out of this unscathed. Um, it just really depends on you know, the, any sort of marketing agreements that they had and, and then also hedging activities that are a huge difference from farm to farm. Um, in the upper Midwest, the cost structure is all about the same. So the, the cost side isn't as much as the revenue side. We've got a big revenue problem. Do you see producers getting out of business, very many of them? Um, I think it's a little early for that at this point. Um, I think people want to see a little more clarity from a standpoint of what's going to happen um, you know, into this fall. Um, in general, also for diversified farms, um, you know, in general, we've got a really good crop coming so far. And so I think some people are looking forward to that. The, uh, but yes, we do have folks that are getting out and or, you know, changing the structure of their business. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, we will see a combination of both of those things happen. Um, and, and I think to a certain degree, it's, it's inevitable, but it's really going to be a, a farm by farm situation. Um, some farms are going to be come out at the other end of this, and yep, they're going to be trimmed back some, but they'll be just fine. Um, for others, it's going to be um, something that's more serious financially. But again, depending on what Congress ends up doing, could make a big difference for what happens with that restructure. David, thank you for being with us and giving us an overview and assessment of the, uh, of the pork industry in your state of Minnesota. Thank you very much. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. David Preisler. CEO of Minnesota Pork Producers. Up next, the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. They're trying to get more types of wheat into the CFAP program. So far, they haven't been able to. We'll talk about those efforts next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Last week, USDA announced several more commodities being included into CFAP, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, but the efforts to get more wheat into that program has not been successful so far. 
And here to talk about that is the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, Chandler Gould. Chandler, thank you for joining us. Are you frustrated that you haven't been able to get uh, more wheat into the program? Well, I would definitely say that we are, are disappointed that the USDA looked at such a narrow time frame in order to determine eligibility uh, for this program. Because if you look at either side of that window that they used, you can definitely see that all six classes of wheat have experienced price volatility and should have qualified for this program. And then the second round, after we supplied economic data demonstrating uh, this price volatility and, and drop, uh, it was very disappointing that we were not included in the second round. So what classes of wheat are still not eligible that you're trying to get in? Well, uh, so the two that were in, of course, were uh, hard red spring and durum, which only make up about 30% of the wheat grown in the United States. So we left out, made the biggest class, of course, of hard red winter, um, and then, of course, our soft white and some of our other minor classes. So 70% of the wheat grown uh, was not included in this program. So we do continue to work with the USDA on, on, on the CFAT program, but we're really also – um, you know, how, what we have to do here in D.C., laying the groundwork for any additional programs that may come out of the administration or Congress to make sure that all six classes of wheat and all of our wheat growers are eligible. So kind of for our listeners, make your case like you are to uh, USDA and why you think these classes of wheat should be included. Oh, most definitely. We are encouraging the USDA to look at cash and local prices. Uh, because they often are much lower and, and almost always different than the futures price. And so we think by looking at the cash prices, you know, we've, we've already demonstrated uh, across the geogra- different geographical regions that we have here in the United States that wheat growers are still suffering uh, not only from COVID, but also from some trade disruptions as we continue to move in with uh, China and, and ramping up that phase one agreement. USMCA just now coming uh, completely together. And so we're encouraging them to look at a broader set of data than just the futures price. And and so that's going to be our continued push as we continue to work with Congress and the administration. And as you said, not only still trying to get into CFAP, but also laying that groundwork for any future assistance programs that may be coming. Exactly. You know, uh, we've, we've already started to meet with some key offices, um, you know, uh, Chairman uh, uh, Congressman Lucas uh, from Oklahoma has been very uh, willing to help us. Uh, Chairman Peterson uh, from Minnesota is uh, very interested uh, in this topic. And then, of course, you know, um, for the current crop season, you know, Texas and Oklahoma are already, and and some some of our other states are already done with harvest. And so we're already moving up into into Kansas and for the further uh, northern tiers of the of the wheat belt. And so. We want to make sure that we've got this groundwork laid for anything else that comes out, knowing that we've got uh, production and harvest almost halfway done across the United States. And so, again, we continue to work with the USDA, uh, but we were disappointed that we were not included in the second round. Yeah, they've given out about, uh, they've sent out about a little over $5 billion of the $16 billion, uh, and they they let in a lot of commodities, a lot of specialty crops uh, were able to get in uh, in that announcement last week. When you saw all those that have been included and wheat still not in, are you thinking, now, wait a minute, all those are in and the, the money's going to be spread out over all those? Does it feel like your chances are slipping away here? 
Unfortunately, I, I think the CFAP vote has, has completely failed, but I feel very confident that NOG has done its best in representing the U.S. wheat grower to the USDA. Um, and, of course, I don't want to speak uh, 100% on behalf of the rice industry, but they were caught in the exact same boat that the wheat industry was. And I, think, I think it's interesting that the two largest uh, food grains uh, were not eligible, but both wheat and rice saw that uh, a slight spike in our futures price when you had all that panic buying going on and you you know there were weeks you couldn't find flour or bread or bagels or any any wheat products in the grocery store but you and i both know just because there was a little spike in the futures price that doesn't mean that money actually went back into my wheat growers pockets and unfortunately that happened to be the time frame that the department was looking at in order to, to, to determine eligibility. So it was a little disappointing to see all of these uh, other crops that, that made it into the second round, and I know they need the support. I'm not, I'm not upset about that. What I am is concerned about is just the narrow window they used for eligibility, which is why, again, we've asked for them to increase their data, their, their data uh, parameters and to look at cash and local price, prices in order to determine eligibility for this program and future programs. So timing was critical, and maybe uh, the timing of that little spike in demand for wheat products is now costing you, you think? It definitely is. It's definitely um, costing our growers who are continuing to, to experience hardship with their price volatility. Um, and, and if you look at it, that was only, what, a two- or three-day window they looked at. If you go on either side of it, you can see that, that the price of wheat and all six classes continue to, to, to decline. And so um, that, that has cost us. And hopefully the next time, you know, we've been in good communication with the department. They've also corresponded back with us. Um, but we were going to ask them, again, to either look at a longer window or to look at more local prices so that we can uh, make sure that all six classes and all of my wheat growers are eligible for any assistance as we all continue to work collaboratively through COVID and the trade situation that we are currently in in all of agriculture all right chandler thank you for the update we appreciate it hey appreciate it always enjoy being on your show and have a good day thank you take care chandler Gould, ceo of the national association of wheat growers well tomorrow we'll get an update on cfap the money that's been sent out so far those new commodities that have been included and what about efforts like uh, the wheat growers trying to get into uh, CFAP. We get more classes of wheat into CFAP. We'll talk with the FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce about that tomorrow and much more. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. Be safe, everyone.